All right, if you have a Bible, turn to John 15. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the men will pass you a Bible. You're going to want to follow along. John 15. And you'll recall, just to catch you up to speed, that it's, it's hours now until Jesus is arrested and tortured, beaten, and then subsequently crucified. It, we're just hours from that. It's late into the night, Thursday evening, as we pick up in John 15. In the early hours of Friday morning, Jesus will be arrested, and he's with his disciples He knows he's about to leave. They know he's about to leave, though they don't quite understand that and they're not really okay with that. They're having much difficulty and trouble with that, but they're with him still nonetheless. But Judas has left. He has departed. He has chosen to betray Jesus for money. He didn't actually love Jesus. He looked like one of God's people. He looked like a Christian. He looked like he loved Jesus, but he did not love Jesus. And Now Jesus is going to spend the evening, among other things, explaining that to the disciples. You know, we spend several weeks, maybe a couple of months, going through a conversation that took place in one night over a few hours. So we have to bear that in mind. One thing the disciples are thinking about in these chapters at this time is, where the heck did Judas go? Where'd he go? Jesus, why did you dismiss him? They don't understand yet. When they were sitting around the table, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And they all said, who, 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 who is that going to, is it me, is it me, is it me? Who's going to betray you? Meaning this, they didn't have any idea that it was Judas. None of them said, oh, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think it's going to be Judas. We kind of saw that coming. They're all shocked. So, This is disturbing to them. Judas has left. Jesus is now explaining to them. In light of Judas leaving, that in particular, he's going to explain to his disciples, this is what it means to be a true disciple. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what it looks like to be connected to me. And he uses this analogy of vines and branches. John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So he is the vine. The father is the gardener. He's outside of the vine. We're the branches that are connected to the vine. But there's some branches that are just attached to the vine, but they're not actually receiving life from the vine. They look like they're connected to the life of the vine, but they're not connected to the life of the vine. They look like God's people, but they're not. Judas was in that camp. Judas was a branch that gets broken off and thrown out. He didn't actually love Jesus. He wasn't actually connected in any sort of life-giving way to Jesus. The dead branches are cut off and the living branches, well, they persevere. They remain. Jesus uses this word abide. They abide in the vine. They abide in the vine. So that's True, those are all truths. So now, what does it look like to abide in the vine? What does it mean to abide in the vine? We understand that a true disciple will abide, that a true disciple will remain, will persevere. So now, what does that look like? What does it mean? Last week, we talked about fruit bearing. Jesus says one thing it means is that you will bear fruit. We looked at that kind of big picture, fruit. But now he takes the analogy and he brings it into reality, He takes the vine and the branches and and, and he now begins to talk about that in a way that is actually connected to life. It's no longer analogy, it's now reality, what the analogy was pointing to, starting here in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, there's the gardener, but now he stops talking about the gardener and he starts talking about the Father. And he stops talking about the vine, he starts talking about me. He stops talking about branches, he starts talking about you, his disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Same love that the Father has for me, with that same love, with that same capacity, with that same intensity, with that same fullness, I love you. So abide in my love. The first thing that it looks like To abide in God 
to abide in Christ is that we love God. We're going to look at two things today. Very simple. Love God and love others. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Look with me at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Love God and love others. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 22. A a man comes to him and says, Jesus, tell me the most important commandments. That's a typical type of human question, right? Just just let me cut to the chase. Just tell me what, what do I really need to focus on? And Jesus graciously answers the question. He says that the two commandments are this. Number one, that you'd love God. That you'd love God. And number two, that you'd love your neighbor. And he goes so far to say this, that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Therefore, as Christians, when we say, okay, we're connected to Jesus, we're connected to the life of God, what does that look like? Well, what did Jesus say was most important? What did Jesus say everything else is bound up in these two things? Not that we cut off everything else, but it's, it, it's explained most simply in these two things, love God and love others. Well, that's what it ought to look like then to abide in the vine, to abide in Christ. The first is love God, love God. To be connected to the vine, to Jesus, to be connected to the life of God is to love God. Do we get that? To be connected to the life of God is to love God. There is no connection to God without love for God. There is no true love for God without being connected to him. Those that are in the world who are not Christians are disconnected from God, disconnected from the vine. They are not fruit-bearing branches. This is all of us at one time. This was me until the age of 19. This is you until some age in your life. Maybe it's some of you here this morning are still there, not connected to the life of God. Maybe you say, I love God, but you actually don't. Maybe you don't put up any pretenses. Maybe you acknowledge, if there's a God, I'm not sure who he is. Um, Hope he likes me, that sort of thing but you're not connected to the life of God. Well, there are some branches that are not connected to the life of God. For those who are actually connected to Christ, to be connected is to love God. To live a life that abides in the vine, that remains in the vine, is to live a life marked by love for God. The first commandment, this goes all the way back to the beginning. The first commandment that God gives us, that he gives to Moses on Mount Sinai is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods who you give honor and love and esteem and glory to. There's no other gods that are worthy of your worship. There's no other gods. Now we can take things and we can make them objects of worship and we can take things and put them in the place of God. They're, of course, not gods, but that's what God's talking about. That's what the Lord God is talking about. Don't take other things and put them in my place. Love me first. Love me most. Martin Luther says that if we get the first commandment right, that we won't break the rest of them. If we don't put other things above God and worship other things above God and, 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 and long for other things as we long for God that if we have God in the right spot, everything else will come in order. But it's when we get the first one messed up, when we love something else more than God, that the other ones begin to break. No other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Matthew 22, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. What's the most important commandment? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, or with all your strength. The Christian is one who loves God. The Christian is one who loves God with his whole person, might, soul, heart, all of it. All of it is toward God and for God in love and honor and adoration to God. Now, we don't love God first. We know that. We don't love God first. He loves us first. We don't pursue God first. He pursues us first. We don't initiate relationship with God first. 
but he initiates with us first. This is clear in Scripture. John says it this way in 1 John. He says simply, we love God because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. In John chapter 13, verse 1, where this whole night began at the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples, 13.1 says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. And then John says this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's not to the end of his life. That's to the max, to the fullest, to the extent of his capacity. And just so you know, God's capacity to love is infinite. So God's love, Christ's love for us is infinite. He loves us to the extent of his capacity. His love never ends towards you. His love never ends for his church. Jesus loves his own to the end and he loves us first. He loves us first. We don't love God first. He loves us first. Christians are those whose lives have been totally interrupted by the pursuing, persistent, and heart-piercing love of God. And Christians are those who have been changed by the love of God, and Christians then are ones who respond in love for God. God pursues us, we respond to him. He pursues in love, we respond in love. Have you, ever, have you experienced this? Do you remember when you first got saved? You remember realizing what it's like to respond to God in love? I pray that you, you still respond to God in love and still realize what's happening when you're responding to God in love. I pray those sorts of things for our church often. I was talking to a guy a while back. He would got saved, and we were just one of the, my favorite things in life is hearing about people's not only conversion experiences, but maybe particularly how they got saved, what God's doing in their life, how God's grace is shaping and changing them, what God's done in them. And this guy was talking to me about this, and he says, you know, I, I, I started, you know, as you know, I started coming to church. We started, um, I started hanging out with Christians. I started hearing the gospel, hearing God's word preached, and I realized I kind of like this. I'm you know, I don't know if I'm there yet, but I wanted to keep going. I, had, I felt some momentum going in my heart, kind of snowballing, and I wanted to keep going back. And I never had a, there it is, there's my conversion moment. It was this day, this time, this hour. I never had that. But what I realized, this guy said, is that over time, I realized I began, I was beginning to think differently. I realized I was beginning to view things differently. I realized my desires were beginning to change. The things that I used to want to do, I didn't really have as much of a desire for. And things that Christians did, I began to, to yearn for. It began to get switched, and I began to think differently and feel differently and desire differently. And now looking back, I realized I was being born again. God was saving me. And I was responding back to him now in love. I desire to be with God now. I don't desire to be in the world. I had another person who... Um, not a Christian, but in uh, church trying to figure things out and became a Christian and heard a scripture that they had heard a million times before, but this time, all of a sudden, this scripture hit their ears and they realized, I understand what that means now. That's because God's love had changed the heart. They didn't exegete the text. They didn't pick up, consult a commentary or any other Bible study tools, but the Holy Spirit had changed their heart. And so now I hear God's word and it, it sounds different. It means something different. I, I, I understand it differently because it's living and active and now it's affecting my heart and I get to respond in love. God pursues us in love. We respond to God then in love. So has your life been interrupted by God's love? Has your life been interrupted by God's love? What happens when we become Christians is we are heading one way and God literally, inter he intervenes in our life and he redirects our course. 
he actually interrupts, he intercedes, he, he breaks in, and he destroys the road that we were going down, and he directs us down another one. And it's his love that does that destruction, that holy, good destruction to the sinful, hellbound road. His love wrecks that and directs us down his. So have you been interrupted? Has your life been completely interrupted and diverted by God's love? If the answer is no, I would just encourage you with this, that in love, he is pursuing you now. You didn't get here because you're really smart or you really wanted to be at a good church. If you are not a Christian, you are here because God put you here. For whatever reason, for whatever way, whatever method, whatever thought occurred to you, whatever thing you saw online, whoever you got invited by, God put you here. He organized and orchestrated all of that. And so God's pursuing you now. Because when the church comes together, friends, God's name is magnified and his grace is dispensed in a special way. God's pursuing you through his word. His word is preached, his gospel is made clear, it's living, it's active, and his word is at work in your heart. God's pursuing you through the songs that we sing. Very intentional about the songs that we choose. They teach us about the Lord. They teach us about who he is, about what he's done. They draw us out to worship him for the right reasons, in the right way, singing true things about him. God's pursuing you through that. He's pursuing you through the prayers as you hear God's people gathered together and you hear prayers from the lips of saints. God's pursuing you in all these ways. If God's love hasn't completely interrupted your life yet, I just want to point out to you that He's at work. He's pursuing you now. If you are a Christian who has been totally interrupted by God's love, God continues to pursue you in love. He's continuing to cultivate your love for him. He's continuing to grow your love for him. He's calling you to respond again this morning in love for him, abiding in him, continuing in him. Ephesians 4.16 says something like, this, that when the body of the church comes together, it builds itself up in love. It builds itself up in love towards Christ. So we come together, we're spurring each other on, we're, we're hearing God's word, we're talking about it later on, we're, we're spurring each other on. God is, cult, that's all God's work. He's cultivating our love for him, individually and corporately as a church. So God's pursuing you in love and God is continuing to pursue you in love. Briefly, what does it mean to love God? I just want to help define this for us. What does it mean to love God? I, I find it always helpful to be as clear, as simple, but as clear as we can on defining important terms like love. As we've talked about in our culture, love is a very loose term. It's more of a sentiment it's more of maybe a psychological state, something we say. I meant to, uh, I wrote this, I was, I was listening to, uh, it was with Haddon last night, we were listening to his Sesame Street song and, and Ernie was singing this song about love. And I meant to write it down, I forgot. But he basically says, love isn't love the greatest feeling. Love is a feeling everyone likes to have. You know that you're feeling love when you want to sing, things like that. It's obviously for kids, it's goofy, it's silly. And yet... Not too far off from how the culture views and understands love. Love is a feeling that's so great to have. It's such a good sentiment. I just, when I get with you, I get those butterflies. That's love. How I feel. How I feel. I fell out of love. Nothing I can do about it. Don't have the same feelings. Okay? That's all garbage. That is not, that is not the biblical definition of love. Can love be expressed in, in, in feelings? Is that a part of love? Certainly but feeling is not love. How horrible would that be? All of a sudden, I don't feel like I love you anymore. Boom, done. Done, I'm over it. Right when things get hard, done. That's not the biblical love. The biblical definition of love that we've been using throughout John is this, the commitment, our commitment, unwavering commitment 
to seeking the good of another without selfish motive. Whole definition is important. Committed to seeking the good of another without selfish motive. Because we can seek the good of others and be totally selfish inside, right? So we need that whole definition. Seeking the good of another, committed to that, not just, well, I tried, you know, didn't work. Committed to it, seeking the good of another without selfish motive, for their good, not for an ulterior motive. To serve and love and care for them, not to just make ourselves feel better. That's the definition of love we've been using. When it comes to loving God, I want to talk about it, think about it. I want us to think about it in this way, that we're committed to seeking the glory of God with our whole person. We're committed to seeking the glory of God with our whole person. God says his glory is, his, is the most important thing to him. Therefore, for us to love God, we're seeking what's most important for him, his glory, Honoring him, extolling him, magnifying his name, talking about his deeds, talking about his person in private and in public, in our own hearts. As we sit down to eat, we glorify God. But also as we go out in public and with our friends and neighbors and coworkers, we're wanting to also glorify God. Seeking, committed to seeking God's glory with our whole person, not compartmentalizing it into different parts of life, I'm a Christian at home, but not so much at work, that sort of thing, but with our whole person. So God has loved us. He sought our good. He has pursued us in love even when we were far from him. We've responded to him in love. We seek his glory. We seek his honor. We seek his affection. We seek his devotion. So what does this look like then in life? What does this look like on Monday morning? What is this? Of a Christian's relationship with God. Our lives as Christians are characterized by obedience to God. So how do we know what God wants? How do we know what he's told us to do? How do we know what he desires from us? How do we know? Well, we know from his word. We open our Bibles we study our Bibles, we read our Bibles, and then we do what it says. James, New Testament book of James, he says this, he says, don't, don't merely be hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves, but be doers of the word. Don't just hear it preached, don't just read it for yourself and say, it's very good, that's very nice, it fits into my nice categories, but be doers of the word. Hearers and doers. How do we know? We pick up God's word, we read it, we study it, we learn it, we get to know it. In doing so, we get to know God. Friends, this is, I mean, I've said this before, this is the why behind so much of what we do. This is the why behind our men's discipleship, that we get together as guys, we're helping each other to learn the Bible better, that we can know God better, that we can obey him better. This is why we do the parked ministry. We want women to be trained to have knowledge and understanding and to work that out in life, to invite others into that, to know God's word better, to be able to obey it better. This is why we do union groups. This is why we put such a heavy emphasis on the preaching of God's word it's because it's really, really, really important that we know God's word. This is why our services are filled with scripture reading, are filled with songs that sing scripture, are filled with prayers so that we can be exposed to God's word. We do these things so we can know God's word, that we can be shaped by God's word, that we might spur one another on to obedience to God, that we might abide in God, that we might love God, that we might love God. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You might say, just anticipate this, well, you know what? I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I can't, I haven't kept the commandments perfectly. I I can't keep the commandments perfectly. And I would just say, that's not what we're talking about. Nobody ever asked you to be perfect. 
Nobody is requiring perfection of you. Look at the disciples. Look at the ministry of the disciples and, and, and how Jesus deals with them. Are they perfect guys? They're not. They blow it a lot. They blow it a lot in a lot of different ways. They kind of fill up the board in mistakes. And yet Jesus keeps pursuing them. He keeps pushing them. He keeps teaching them. He keeps loving them. He keeps growing them. Jesus has to go to the cross. He chooses to go to the cross to die for people who are not perfect. So we're not talking about perfection. Don't absolve yourself with the excuse, I'm not perfect. We're not talking about perfection. We are talking about progress. Not perfection, but progress. Progress. That we continue to grow in Christ. We continue to progress towards Christ. We used the analogy a few weeks ago of a stock market. It's up and down, it's up and down, but over the long haul, it's up, right? It's up, hopefully, unless you make a poor decision. Overall, the goal is that it be up, up. Okay, that's what the Christian life looks like. I know I've talked to some folks who have been Christians for a long time, and they're like, you know, I'm just a baby Christian. It's like, you've been a Christian for like 30 years. How are you still, what does that mean? I don't understand what that means. Because friends, we can't be Christians and just be flatlined forever. That's not what it ought to look like. Not perfection, but progress on the way up. Ups and downs, but on the way up. And friends, we have a model for this. Verse nine, again, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Listen, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We have a model, friends. Just as I have loved, so you love. Just as I have kept, so you keep. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our standard. Jesus is the one we look to. What does this look like? What does it look like to abide? What does it mean to abide? Jesus is one who abides in the Father's love, as one who has sought the Father's glory, as one who has kept the Father's commandments. He now calls us to do it like him. John 17, four says this. Jesus says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus abides in the Father's love, seeks his glory, keeps his commandments. We ought to do the same like Jesus. Say, well, Jesus was perfect. Yes, he he was perfect. You and I are not perfect. Yes, Jesus earns righteousness for us. We are not righteous apart from Jesus. But we are not talking about being perfect like Jesus. The point is this, that we're progressing towards Jesus. He's our model. He's our standard that we look to him. We say, how did Jesus abide in God's love? How did Jesus glorify God? How did Jesus obey God? And how can we do it like that? He's our standard. He's our standard. You see, all this this self-help stuff, you're enough, you're good, you just gotta get the right habits, you just gotta get in the right mindset, you just gotta get the right exercise routine, you just have to get enough self-esteem, you just have to tell yourself that you're good enough, you just, have to, you just have to get pumped up, you just have to get in shape, then you can go out and everyone will look at you and think you're super hot and it'll make you feel really good. All this self-help stuff, it's not solving any of the problems because all it's doing is teaching us to look inward, to self Here's your standard. Just be the best version of yourself you can be and everything will be cool. That's looking inward to self. We need to look outward to Jesus. The answer's not in us. The answer's in him. The answer's not inside, it's outside. Transformation doesn't start inside out. It starts outside in. Jesus comes from the outside. He enters us and we're changed. So we look outward to Christ. We look outward to Jesus. Let me just say this, too, about progress, about abiding, progressing. We might feel good about ourselves for a while when we improve our health, when we learn stuff. 
We build our self-esteem. We're doing the self-improvement stuff. And we might be going 100 miles an hour down that road. But if we're not headed towards Jesus, this is the point. If we're not headed towards Jesus, we're headed in the wrong direction. If I say, I want to get up to Portland, but I'm going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction towards Arizona, you might be covering a lot of ground, but you're going in the wrong direction. You're going in the wrong direction. Abiding in Christ is moving towards Christ. It's about direction, not about speed. Some seasons you'll have, we'll have seasons where we're leaping towards Christ. Some will be walking at a good pace, and some you might be crawling. It's really difficult, and you're not making any progress. Some seasons you might even be crawling and and you might even stop for a, for a bit and then keep crawling again because it's really difficult and you're beat down. But you know what? If you're headed in the right direction, that's towards Christ, that's what we're looking for. That's what we're looking for in our lives. Are we headed towards Christ? Are we growing towards Christ? We don't want to be going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. So we abide in God's love, we keep his commandments, and doing so we demonstrate our love for him, and we are continued to be conformed into the image of Christ, and the result is joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That God's not a mean boss who's looking for ways to constrain us and crush us. All right, here are all these rules. I want to take away all your fun. You can't go do the good stuff. You got to just be. I've talked to so many people who are like, yeah, I would consider being a Christian, but it just sounds so boring. I just don't want to do, I, I want to do fun stuff. Like, I want to do stuff that I like. And if I become a Christian, it's like, yeah, I, it, I feel like God just kind of takes all that stuff away. That's not true, A. B, that's so far from the intent, it's actually the exact opposite of what God wants to do. He's not a mean boss trying to constrain and crush us. Rather, God is a good father. And friends, he desires our joy. He desires our joy. That's the purpose of him calling us to obedience to him. Verse 11, look, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. What things? Abide in me, obey my commandments. I've, I've told you that so you'll have joy. The result of abiding and keeping is joy. If you're a dad, you know that you want your kids to have joy. Joy. But one of the most crucial components of them receiving joy is them being obedient to what you say. Isn't it? If you... Have your kids, you have a front yard, you put a fence up in your front yard and you say, now kids, don't play beyond the fence. You might say, dad, I wanna play beyond the fence. You're being mean, I don't like that. You say, okay, all right, we gotta work on this, but I'm not trying to be mean. I don't want you to get hit by a car, right? The rule, don't jump over the fence and play in the street. Why? Because you'll have much more joy if you don't get hit by oncoming traffic. You'll have much more joy here in the safety of the yard with all the toys. With the, you won't get lost. You won't get stolen. You won't get hit. There's joy here in obeying what I say, not joy in rebelling and jumping over the fence. That might seem sexy. It might seem fun. And then you get hit by a car, and then it's all over. There's a proverb that says, a man's ways... Something like this, a man brings his own ways to ruin and then his heart rages against the Lord. I jumped over the fence, I got smashed by the car, I'm mad at God. <laughs> God told you not to jump over the fence. You chose not to listen. No, joy, joy, there's joy in obedience. Love God is the first component. We'll wrap up here quickly with the second. That's love others, love others. This is my commandment that you love one another. Verse 12, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. 
For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Again, the great commandment is love God and love others. True love for God, true abiding in God will equal true love for others. It will equal true love for others. It will result in true love for others. Why is this true? Because when we abide in Jesus, we progress towards him, we begin to look like him. Look with me at verse 12. This commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. When we progress towards Jesus, we begin to look like him. We begin to love like him. And when we look at his love, we see that his love was poured out in full for others. John 13, 1, he loved his own to the max, to the end. With the fullness of his capacity, he loved them. His love was poured out for others When we're progressing towards Christ, our love is going to look like that. It's going to look like that. Love for others. Poured out, not to those who deserve it. His love was poured out, not for those who earned it, not just for those he likes, but to his enemies. To his enemies. His enemies who he makes, not only slaves, not only servants, he says, but friends. His love makes his enemies his friends. His love gives them access into his life. His love takes enemies and chooses them while they still hated him. Jesus' love looks at his enemies and saves them, makes them friends, and causes them to bear fruit. His love is poured out to his enemies to such a degree that he says, ask anything, whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Yeah, his love was poured out in full, in full. That's the love of Jesus for others. That's the love he commands you and I to give to others. It's not just a love that Let me say it this way. It's not just a display of kindness. It's not just a display of politeness or serving others when convenient, but it's a pursuing love that's fiercely committed to the good of brothers and sisters. One author says this, the love of God for Christians becomes the love of God between Christians. Our love for both God and others, especially for brothers and sisters in Christ, is the life of the church. This is not a normal love, but one which stems from the love of Christ, as he says, just as I have loved you. God has loved, he has chosen, he has saved, he has set apart a people for himself, and he desires his love to flow to this people, us, and through this people. Not a swamp, but a river. He's given us his love, and it flows through us to others. So how? How? How do we remain faithful? How do we actually love others like that? Because if we're honest, we look at this love and we say, Jesus loved perfectly. I can't love like that. Jesus loved with perfect commitment, with total commitment and ferocity of love. His love does not end. It's everlasting. It, It never stops. I can't love like that. How can I love like that? Here's how we love like that, church. Realize and remember who you're connected to. Look back with me all the way to verse one, chapter 15. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. This I am, we've seen six other times in John. This is the seventh time This is God's name for himself. Jesus is assuming on himself the name of God, the eternally self-existent King, Lord, God, and Savior. I am the true vine. 
And Christians, you and I are branches connected to that vine. We can't love like Jesus loves on our own. We need to be connected to him. Remember who you're connected to. You and I are connected to the bread of life, the true satisfying food, no more hungering. We are connected to the light of the world, the true guide for life, no more stumbling in the darkness. Remember that you're connected to the door of the sheep, the true entrance into God's home, no longer a stranger. Remember that you and I are connected to the good shepherd, the true and sure protection of the sheep, no longer exposed and vulnerable. You and I are connected to the resurrection and the life, true assurance of where you're going, no more questioning, that we're connected to the way, the truth, and the life, the true path to God, no more uncertainty, that we're connected to the true vine, true, full, vibrant life, no more barrenness. That's how we remain faithful That's how we remain faithful, church. Remember and realize who you're connected to. You're not on your own. You're connected to the the source of life. Amen? Father God, we thank you that you have come and connected us to Christ, that you are outside of us, that you are pruning and chopping and cutting and God, for those branches that are bearing fruit, even just a little bit, you prune and you cause further growth. For those that are dead and barren, you cut off to make room for the other branches. And Father, as we consider being connected to the vine, full life, full love, full protection, full care from you, we receive all of the nutrients from the vine Jesus, we ask that you'd give us grateful, thankful, and worshipful hearts this morning as we respond to you in song, in communion, and community. In your good, sweet name, amen.